Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show, sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brent Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego, providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Woolsey. All righty. Welcome to the Smart Investing Show. I am Chase Wilsey with Wilsey Asset Management. And uh, yes, Wilsey Asset Management is the proud investing partner of the San Diego Padres. You may have noticed uh, Brent did not do the opening this morning. He, as many of you may know, actually got married last weekend and is on his honeymoon in Maui. So have a different show here today. Well, I guess it's the same show, but a different co-host with our financial planner, Harrison Johnson. Harrison, how are we doing today? Good. I'm glad to be here. Brent, I'm assuming, might be listening to us over in uh, Hawaii right now from the beach, um, but uh, happy to fill in here today. Well, good. We're, we're glad to have you. And, you know, as always, we're going to go through our, our topics that we normally go through. And, and today we're going to be talking about stocks and valuations. We're going to be talking about kind of the performance of the NASDAQ and those different indices. Also talk about home sales, the economy, and also I'd like to talk a little bit about the China economy. And as always, you have a, a stock you're looking at buying, selling, holding perhaps, you can join the show as well. Phone number is 833-288-0973. Again, that's 833-288-0973. And, and since Harrison is actually live in here uh, in studio with me today, if you have more of a financial planning topic you're looking at addressing, be happy to kind of address that as well. But with that, let's get into it. Let's get into our different topics. First, we're going to talk about stocks, just looking at investing in general. Now, when it comes to managing our half billion dollar portfolio, and I got to say, very excited this past week, we have officially crossed $500 million at Wilsey Asset Management for the first time. It occurred on Thursday, I believe that date was. So, uh, very, very proud of that. So, we can now officially say over half billion dollar portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> but we always talk about how it is a market of stocks and not a stock market. Now, with that being said, it does not mean that we don't have a clue what's going on with the indexes. We continue to feel that indexes will fall from the ra rapid upward climb this year that it's seen. Now, what do we base that on? Harrison, I'll kind of let you address that. With the S&P index being up more than 17% year-to-date, people should realize that the seven stocks of Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, Meta, NVIDIA, and Tesla – um, which have a combined market cap of $11 trillion, are responsible for 73% per, of that year-to-date return. Now, I don't know what uh, you think, but our thought at Wilsey Asset Management is that is not normal, and it is a warning sign that the index could lose steam and begin to slide back down the hill. And, and when we look at this, uh, and we talk about this a lot, is I, I've made the claim that our portfolio at Wilsey Asset Management, and, and it's much more concentrated than 500 stocks, is more diversified than the S&P 500 index. People might be saying, well, how is that possible? It's because of the concentration. The S&P 500 is a market cap weighted index, which means the higher that market cap, the more it occupies of the entire index. So if you look at these big tech companies, they are such a large concentration in the portfolio. You're not really getting much of diversification in energy, much diversification into, let's say, real estate, as another example, those public REITs. So it is something that you have to be cognizant of. And these companies are all very expensive. I saw a statistic here that the valuations now in the S&P 500 is around 20 times future earnings. 
that's not inexpensive by any means. The historical average is about 16.6. Now, it's not that the rest of the stocks are expensive. It's that those top seven stocks have a forward P.E. of over 30 times. So you've got to be careful of this. Yeah, I mean, really, I know there's a lot of index investors out there, and uh, this year it's gone pretty well. But really, the, the reason for that is because those seven companies have done well. So really, you're going to live and die by whatever those do. If those companies go up, you're going to do well. If those companies go down, you're not going to do well. And the thing as well, as you may have noticed, Tesla, Netflix, they reported this past week, and we're actually going to get a lot more earnings reports this week from, from the big tech companies. I think we have Microsoft and Alphabet on deck uh, coming up. I'm not sure when Apple reports, and uh, I know NVIDIA actually reports very, very late in the earnings cycle. But what you noticed with Tesla and Netflix is the reports actually weren't that bad. <laughs> if you look through the numbers, like, oh, they beat on sales. And I know Tesla actually beat on sales and earnings. But when you're priced at a multiple of you know, 30, 40, 50 times, you're priced for perfection. And Tesla had some issues with their gross margin. They had some issues with the estimated deliveries not being as high as anticipated. Their stock got hit. So you could have, I'm going to call good earnings reports, but they may not be good enough to justify these high valuations. Yeah, I mean, it's just overpriced, as you said, Chase. And, um, you know, when, when things are going well and things are going up, it's like, oh, well, I'm, I'm really smart. I bought uh, Apple. I bought Microsoft. I, I really know what I'm doing. But then you can't really be upset with yourself when it goes the other way because you know something is trading at a multiple that is just extremely high. I mean, you wouldn't um, buy a rental property that for a million dollars. It's only going to – you can only rent out for 500 bucks a month. I mean, it's the same type of thing. You have to look at – what uh, what cost you're paying for those earnings. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the reason we, we point this out is just because I think a lot of times people don't realize how big a downside fall can really impact their portfolio. And, and with that, to just kind of give you an example, we look at the, the NASDAQ. That's actually up over 34% this year. And the S&P 500, up over 18% this year. Now, I think most people would be surprised to find out that the Dow is actually closer to its all-time high even though it's up just over 6% this year, greatly trailing those other two indices. Now, many times people don't realize how hard it can be to recoup losses like the NASDAQ saw last year when it fell more than 33%. From their respective highs, the Dow is down 4.7%, the S&P 500 is down 57 and the NASDAQ is still down 12.4%. It's important to remember that a 1% gain does not fully offset a previous witnessed 1% loss. So for the NASDAQ to return to its all-time high, again, it's down 12.4%, it's actually going to need a 14.2% gain from where it currently is to catch back up. While investing in fancy growth names can be exciting, it's these potential major turns that keep me out of the growth stocks as it can take you years to recover. And as I said, it, it's fun. You know, congratulations if you held NVIDIA and it's up over 200% this year. You bought it several years ago and it, it's up, you know, I'm going to say very, very drastically, a couple thousand percent in fact. <laughs> but the problem is, when does that turning point come? And if you don't know why you're still holding it and you can justify holding it at these lofty earnings valuations, you know, it, it could fall 20, 30, 40% again very, very easily just because of all the excitement that is built into this stock and, and actually many of these exciting stocks out there. And to recover that, it's going to take a while. I mean, we talk about like Tesla. Tesla's up very, very dramatically this year. Still not near as 
all-time high. And I mean, the, the, the issue with that mostly um, is it's hard to replicate because just because you have one company that does really well, that doesn't mean that you're always going to be finding those companies that are going to be trading at, you know, 50 times earnings, 100 times earnings. Tesla at one time was trading at like 2,000 times earnings. So for every one that does well, there's a thousand that do not. And so a lot of people got into the trap of, you know, oh, well, I did really well on Tesla. I'm going to go into Rivian and or then Lucid or Lucid. And, you know, they lose 70, 80 percent on that. So um, when you ha when you invest, you want to have a discipline that can be replicated over time because the purpose is to grow money that will eventually create income for you for as long as you need it. And if you're not able to continually buy things at the right time, sell things at the right time, you don't have a long lasting strategy that's going to ultimately give you that income that you need. And then the second thing I was, or do you have anything on that, Chase? Go ahead. The second thing I was going to say, um, you know, back to the, the returns that you need to catch back up. I mean, when you think about it, the NASDAQ essentially lost a third of its value last year. And so to catch back up to that, it's really going to need a 50% return from the bottom to catch back up to that. So the more that you lose, the exponentially larger return you need to break even. And so that's where, you know, a lot of these things, like if you look at Kathy Wood, she's up a lot this year, but she's still down like 70% or something like that from the high that she's at. That's just because she lost so much and it's very, very difficult to, to kind of recoup those losses. I was just going to pull that up. So year to date, Kathy Wood is up 57%, mm -hmm. which is like, wow, she's doing pretty good. I'd be happy with 57% in six months. <laughs> <laughs> but if you've held that since the peak, she's still down 69% yeah, from the so high. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Still down like 70%. And yeah. so, you know, um, you lose so much and you really get to the point where you, you can't get it back. And that's where you know, it's it's great when you're making money. It's great when things are going up, but things can turn very quickly. And then you get into the trap. Oh, well, I'm going to buy the dip. I'm going to buy the dip. And you just kind of keep increasing your, your cash flows into that. And you get to the point where, oh, wow, now I've really made a mistake. And those are the mistakes that we say, you know, can really set you back years to, to try and correct what you've done. Well, I mean, we talk about, you know, just very simplistically, a 50% loss requires 100% gain Yeah, to, to get back just to break even. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I think people kind of psych themselves out as well. So let's say you buy something that drops 50% and then it goes up 50%. You might get a little nervous because now it's up 50 percent. Oh, do I need to take profits? Well, you're still not even close to back to where you were at from that initial fall. Yeah, you'd be at what? Still 25 percent down yeah. from where you were at. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's something that you just really have to understand when you invest is when you take those big risks. And we always tell people stocks are not risky. People do risky things with stocks especially in times like this because they see their neighbor making all this money on the NVIDIAs. They see the other people making money on the Bitcoins of the world. And they're like, oh my gosh, it's so easy to make all this money. But in reality, in the long term, it is not easy. And, and we, we always tell people the, the investing concept is, is quite simple to understand. But the hard part is you know ignoring all the noise that goes on out there and ignoring all the excitement that, that yes, you may be missing out on, but you're also not going to buy the Cisco's back in 2000 that you're still not back to that that peak that was reached then. Or again, I, I talk about the NASDAQ. It reached a peak in 2000, didn't reach that peak again until 2015. That's 15 <laughs> years of not compounding. Imagine if you were in retirement and you bought the NASDAQ at its peak in 2000. You'd be screwed. Yeah, you would uh, be going to back to work, I guess. <laughs> I mean, uh, 15 years of making no money, I think you're 
you're out of money at that point. Yeah, especially because <laughs> you're starting to deplete that portfolio. And now you're having, because people say, well, yeah, but if I held the NASDAQ for 15 years, then I, I did make the money back. Yeah, that's true. But if you're needing to draw on that portfolio for income, I mean, you're having to sell at a 60, 70, 80, 90% loss at times to generate that income. You're locking in these major losses. And that's where understanding the, the management of the portfolio is so important. And again, why we don't like to take those big risks on these highly valued companies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's important to make money. It's also important not to lose money because, again, the overall point is to create an income stream. That's the reason why we invest. That's the reason why we have an account. It's not just to have more commas and zeros in a, in a statement that we look at. We're trying to create income and cash flow. Exactly. Well, you know, I know a lot of people look at, at the real estate market as well. We talked about the stock market here, obviously, but let's talk a little bit about the, the real estate market this time. Looking at existing home sales in the month of June, they actually fell 18.9% compared to last year. Now, this marked the slowest pace of home sales for a June since 2009. I mean, that, that was just crazy to me when I saw that number. But even with the decline in sales, the median price of $410,200 has held up quite well, falling just over 1% compared to last June's record number. Now, the reason for this is the inventory level. It struggled immensely as it fell 13.6% to just 1.08 million homes available for sale across the entire country. <laughs> yeah, affordability has really challenged the first-time home buyer as the group made up just 26% of sales. This is down from 30% last year, and it is the lowest level on record since the realtors began tracking this number. Uh, we continue to believe home prices will kind of be in a go-nowhere trend for the next couple years as affordability will limit upside potential and the lack of inventory will prevent a substantial decline. Yeah, it, it's... I'm going to say it's a, a strange real estate market. It is. I mean, <laughs> it always, it, the last couple of years, I mean, it's been strange for different reasons. Now we're in this situation where, you know, demand is really getting stifled because interest rates have gone up. And that was kind of the purpose behind, you know, slowing inflation. The, the Fed's been trying to do that. So, you know, two years ago, you had a 3% mortgage. Now you're looking at close to eight. And yeah. so that's a substantial increase. So demand is definitely slowed, but when you know you look at the relationship between supply and demand, that's ultimately what determines the price of everything. Um, supply is extremely low as well. There's just not that many homes for sale because over the past couple of years, there hasn't been a whole lot of building going on. And pretty much everybody has a, that has a mortgage currently has a 3% rate on that mortgage because they're refinanced. And so now they're in a situation where they can't really leave because if they do, they got to, you know, give up their 3% mortgage and go to 7, 8% mortgage on what they buy. So, you know, we're, we're in this really weird situation. Um, and, you know, for that, I, like you said, Chase, I don't think we're going to see a, a massive spike in, in values because I think the Fed wants to keep rates higher for a little bit longer than people were maybe hoping for. Um, so I don't think mortgage rates are going to be dropping like in the next six months or anything like that. I think it could be 12, 18, 24 months until we really start to see some rates coming down. Um, but also on the supply side, you know, there's it's not like magically we're going to go from 1 million homes to 2 million homes yeah. for sale. Yeah. And I, I think you're right on, on the Fed wanting to keep rates higher for longer. And I still think it's the right thing to do. Now, you may get confused because I've said, I think the Fed shouldn't hike. I don't think they should hike. I don't think they need to increase anymore. I think we're already at a restricted enough level, but there's still so much money out there in the economy. 
that I think the interest rates haven't really impacted the economy just yet. And I think it would be a mistake to cut too soon because that's where you could have issues like the 70s where inflation cooled and then it spiked again. Mm -hmm. I don't think we need to be more accommodative, but we also don't need to get more restrictive from where we're at. I think just leaving things alone maybe for the next 12, 18, maybe 24 months might be too long. Yeah, I, I would say maybe the next 12 to 18 months would allow those real rate hikes to come on through and really create more of a, I'm going to say, a, a, a strain on inflation. Keep it low. And then, as you said, rates will come back down over time. And I think once we have, you know, rates maybe around five, maybe five and a half percent, that's when I think you could see more of a normalized economy, more more normalized real estate market, because then people say, yeah, I, I know I have a three percent mortgage, but I had a kid. I uh, had another kid in the family. Maybe I do need to get a new house. And I, I think that supply and, and the, I'm going to say fluidity of the market, it, it'll come back over time. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, it takes time. Like you said, I mean, the Fed could come out next month and, uh, you know, drastically increase rates and that's not going to do anything over time. There there needs to be time for those rates to kind of make their way through the economy. Um, and I think you're right. I don't think there's any reason to increase rates anymore. We just kind of got to let them filter through and uh, we just got to wait. So. Well, and the interesting thing is a lot of people don't realize the rate hikes get all the media attention. What's still going on in the background is quantitative tightening where mm -hmm. the Fed is letting these kind of longer term assets roll off the balance sheet. And that doesn't really get much attention, but that is still another form of, I'm going to say, restrictive policy that doesn't get that attention that I think the Fed can just I mean, I, I've used this term before, but just chill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they've 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 done a lot, so yeah. now they can take some time off. <laughs> but we'll see what happens. I don't run the Federal Reserve. Uh, unfortunately, it does seem like there will be another rate hike this month. Um, there's some speculation there may be one more after this, but uh, I I don't see the point of it. But as I said, we'll, we'll have to kind of take it as it comes. On the other side of that, though, I still think if they raise it, it's really not going to impact. Like, if they do one more hike, I don't think it's going to be like, oh, my gosh, we're going to be in a deep recession. Or yeah, because I think, uh, you know, especially with mortgage rates, I think a lot of that pricing is kind of already kind of found its way through the rates that you have. Um, so if the Fed hikes rates again, I don't think that's necessarily going to mean a, a large increase in the mortgage rates. I, I think we're, we're close to the top, if, if not at the top, as far as what those rates look like. Yeah, definitely. Well, looking at a, another piece of the economy is is it's retail sales. I mean, the consumer still looks to be in an okay spot. And when we look at retail sales, they actually grew just 0.2% in the month of June. And it was below expectations, 0.5%. Now, it may sound pessimistic, but the numbers actually continue to feed my belief that a soft landing in the economy is possible. The consumer is slowing, but it appears by not enough to create what we call hard landing or a, a deep recession. Reason for that is looking year over year, retail sales were actually up 1.5%, but a decline at gas stations of 22.7% weighed heavily on the report. In fact, if gas stations were excluded, retail sales would have actually climbed 4.2% compared to last year. Now, grocery stores also had a much lower impact as they saw an increase of just 1.1% compared to last year, and we're actually down 0.7% compared to last month. The goods economy continues to get hit as furniture and home furnishing stores saw a decline of 4.6%, department stores were down 5.2%, and building material and garden equipment and supplies dealers were down 3.2%. 
For the first time that we can remember in many months, uh, electronics and appliance stores saw an increase of 0.9%. We do believe many of these industries that produce goods could be uh, near a bottom, and as we lap, er, I'm sorry, near a bottom, and as we lap easier comparisons, it could return to growth. Um, areas that remain strong in the report include health and personal care stores at 6.3%, food services and drinking places 8.4%, and non-store retailers 9.4%. And when we look at the, the the economy here again, I mean, I think it's a huge benefit that we're seeing. You know, th- those needs, the, the the needed kind of parts of the economy like gas and food at grocery stores coming down because it's not due to people aren't buying less gas they're not buying less food it's just the the prices have come down on that which is a big benefit because now you don't have to spend as much of your paycheck as let's say at the grocery store at the gas station which leaves you more money to spend in other parts of the economy i actually think that's a big positive there and we know that the the goods economy i mean it has just gotten absolutely shellacked over the last couple of years and I do believe that bottom is nearing. We know that you had the huge spike in, you know, computer sales during COVID or laptops and, and phones and so forth. Well, that has gotten hit so hard that the bottom is now almost in. And as you start to lap those difficult comparisons, you'll return to a point of growth, which is why I actually like uh, some stocks in that that area, because I, I, I think they can start growing upon those difficult areas. Yeah, and it also kind of just shows you how quickly things can change. I mean, a few months ago, we had the banking crisis, and everyone thought that a soft landing was just completely out of the question. We were definitely going to be going into a recession, pretty hard recession. Um, a lot of people were getting out of the market. We saw, you know, a, a decline in the market. But that goes to show you that, um, you know, you have to take the emotions out of it. And, you know, over that time, the markets, the portfolio that you guys are managing, Brent Chase has, has done really well over that time. And I know there's a lot of people that said, uh, you know, the economy is not doing well. I'm just, you know, I'm going to kind of sit back on the sidelines and wait for things to calm down. You know, again, letting those emotions play in. And then, you know, you missed um, a really good few months. Yeah. And, and, and we do see services have done very, very well as well in the economy. And I do think that strength will just naturally slow because as you, again, lap difficult comparisons next year, you're not going to see, you know, food services and drinking places grow at near a 10% rate year over year. It's just not going to happen. So that'll kind of probably soften a little bit, but then the goods economy can start growing again, which is one reason I think we could have actually avoided a recession going forward is just because there is still plenty of money out there. This is what I'm going to call a Goldilocks report because it wasn't necessarily strong enough that it's going to put inflationary pressure, going to make the Fed say, we need to raise rates but it wasn't weak enough to push us into a recession. So with that, I do see we have Jeff in Massachusetts there. So we're going to move on, take some phone calls. You want to join the show. It's 833-288-0973. But before we go to Jeff, did want to promote our smart investing newsletter. Uh, This past week, we did talk about different things like electrical veals. We talked about the music industry, talked about the Chinese economy. If you have time today, I do want to touch upon that the U.S. dollar, and also to the, the student loan debt situation uh, that has been progressing with the, the Biden administration. You want to sign up for that newsletter, go to smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. But with that, it, it looks like uh, Jeff is going to put Harrison on the spot here. He says he's got a question for Harrison. All right. So let's go out to Massachusetts and speak with Jeff. Jeff, how are we doing today? Good morning, gentlemen. How's everyone? Good. Very good. Well. Good to hear from you, Jeff. Good. All right, Harrison, you are on the spot, my friend. <laughs> I had a 
question concerning a Roth IRA. Actually, two questions. Oh, fabulous. Um, the first one is I, I'm funding two Roths. I'm doing half in one, half in the other, two different accounts. Okay. Now, um, I'm retiring at the end of the year. I'm, I'll be 60. Can I combine both of those and make one Roth account? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so all it is is a simple transfer from one to the other and everything can be combined as long as you're going from Roth to Roth or also traditional to traditional. There's no there's no problem with that. So if you like one better than the other, yeah, it can go straight over there. And there's no waiting period, no more five years or anything like that? No, because um, you know, with the Roth five-year rule, it's based on contributions and when you started making those contributions. So as long as you had any Roth IRA and you start making that contribution, that's what starts the five-year rule. So as long as you've had some Roth IRA for five years, um, you're you're totally fine on that, and you can transfer around, and there there won't be a problem. This is the important. This is one more question I want to ask. Considering a Roth, I'm retiring at the end of the year, so I'll have no more W two income. Mm -hmm. But I work for the government, so I get to roll over my um, or cash in my annual leave, mm -hmm. which I'll get a, a check for that next year, early next year, probably in January, and I'll get taxes taken out. Now, is that considered um, income? Um, wages is that I could have still contribute to a Roth for the year of 2024? That should be. So when you get paid out leave, it usually comes in the form of uh, you'll get a W-2 for that box one and your W-2 will have whatever that leave amount is. Um, so it, it's really a matter of how that leave is, is categorized. But as long as um, you know, you're, you're getting a W-2 for that, then then yeah, you would be able to contribute. That's different than, you know, getting a pension or anything like that, that's not considered earned income. Um, but leave is is usually considered uh, wages. And so you have federal state taken out of that in addition to Social Security um, and Medicare taxes. It's a great job, Harrison. Not bad. All right. <laughs> well, hey, thanks for calling there, Jeff. And uh, congratulations on uh, retiring at the end of this year. Oh, thank you very much. Looking forward to it. Take care, guys. All righty, you too. Right. Thanks, Jeff. Alrighty, well that does open another phone line. You want to join the show again? Phone number is eight three three two eight eight zero nine seven three. Again, that's eight three three two eight eight zero nine seven three. And with that, let's go to the the Chinese economy as we're waiting for another caller to come on in here. But China was supposed to have a, a big rebound in their economy as they reopened after shutting it down again for COVID. It seems that it's not working as many thought it would be. Part as many thought it would be. Now, part of the problem could be foreign investment in China. In the first quarter of this year, it actually fell to just $20 billion, well off the $100 billion one year ago. That does contrast to the big gain in foreign investment that we are actually experiencing here in the U.S. The major decline in China investment is likely stemming from companies diversifying from their supply chains and President Xi's national social security agenda. I'm glad to see the in change in investment. How about you? Yeah, it, it's something that I think is quite nice here. And, and the thing I was looking at is actually in the, the Wall Street Journal, they, they did a, a great piece on it. But they were talking about how the, the campaign from Xi has really hit Western management consultants, auditors, and other firms with a wave of raids, investigations, detentions. And they've also expanded their anti-espionage law. And many are worrying that a routine business activity like market research could be construed as spying by the Chinese officials, which, yeah, if I'm running a company, I don't know if I want to go to China <laughs> at that point. Oh, no, you can't do market research. Uh, how do I know who to sell to? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's definitely something to keep a close eye on, but, um, you know, it, it's 
one thing that we did notice during COVID was the lack of diversification across supply chains really hit the goods economy. And I think that's why you're really seeing more investment in factories here in the United States. People saying, ah, we should probably put less in China. And they're also putting a, another place as well. I know India has been a, a, of interest for, for many companies as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's kind of good to hear things like that because, you know, there's just this um, this common belief out there that, that China is doing all these crazy things and they want to take over the world and, um, and all this stuff. And so we have to also, you know, realize that China has their own challenges as well. So it's not like, you know, they're running on all cylinders and we're just struggling over here in the U.S. Exactly. Well, I do see we have a, a couple phone calls here. So let's start with the San Diego and l- let's go to, to Zach there. Looks like uh, he changed it on me. But uh, Zach, you're on the Smart Investing Show. How are you doing today? Doing well, gentlemen. Thanks for taking my call. Of- I was hoping you guys could take a look at uh, Live Nation, L-Y-V. All righty. Let's take a look at uh, Live Nation there. And do, you, do you hold that currently? You looking at buying it? Where, where's things stand? been holding for a while um they're supposed to uh, like the analysts are saying positive earnings which come out this week mm-hmm. and i'm wondering if now's a decent time to get out or maybe continue to hold longer based on what you guys analysis of course well let's take a look at the, the fundamentals for again a uh, live nation and uh, i know they've taken some flack as of late thanks to to miss taylor swift and, and some issues with ticket pricing there but uh, we'll look at the numbers. Current price to earnings multiple for, uh, again, Live Nation. Ticker symbol is LYV. Very strange. 123.5. Very expensive. Price to sales doesn't look bad, though, at 1.3 versus the industry average of 1.9. There's no book value, no tangible book value, which is of concern. Price to cash flow, though, at 12.6. Looks very nice against the industry average of 21.1. The peg ratio of 0.6, also very attractive against an industry average of 4.3. Now, sales over the last one year up 54.7%. There's no earnings growth uh, over the last one year, last five years. But sales growth over the last five years is up 10.8%. So, very curious how sales have climbed so much, but earnings have not. Would really want to understand what's going on with that income statement. The five-year estimated growth going forward, though, 80.3%. So they must have had some one-time expenses or, or something that came in that, that's really caused some problems to that income statement. No dividend for uh, Live Nation here. No buyback yield. The uh, Current ratio, 1.1. So they have a decent amount of liquidity there. As I said, there's no equity on the balance sheet, so I can't derive a debt-to-equity ratio. I'd want to look at their debt levels to see how much debt they have. Has it been increasing, decreasing? But having no equity there is a, is a major concern for me. Looking at the profit margin, 1% uh, above the entry average is actually down 0.6% or negative 0.6%. Return on equity is negative, again, with no uh, equity on the balance sheet. Return on invested capital, 6% below the entry average at 8.1%. Current price for Live Nation, well, it's $96.84. 52-week high is $99.66, and the 52-week low, $64.25. I see year-to-date, the stock's up 38.9%. Over the last one year, it's up just about 5.8%, so they must have taken a a decent-sized hit over 2022. And over the last three years, I see it's up about 96.9%, so it's doing okay over the medium term. Now, if we go forward for the company, I will say uh, a lot of times when people look at trying to buy things around earnings reports, 
it's uh, very dangerous. And the reason I say that is <laughs> Jim Cramer this past week before earnings was out, he was talking about how he's all excited about Tesla and Netflix earnings, and we know that didn't pan out quite well. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't like to necessarily wrap myself up within like, oh, they're reporting earnings. Am I going to trade around that? Do I want to buy or, or sell around that? It's going to come down to the fundamentals for me because you could be very wrong based off an earnings report. And as I said, with Tesla's case, I mean, the earnings report was actually okay, but it just wasn't okay enough for the estimates there and the analysts, which caused the stock to fall. And I will say I'm concerned with uh, Live Nation just because it's, as I said, with the, the trailing 12 months, but even the forward earnings are, are very expensive. I mean, go out to December 2024, I see estimated earnings per share of $1.47. I mean, it gives us a target sell price of $24.40. It trades at a forward PE of 66 times. And I mean, some of that could really come from the accounting side because the earnings growth on this company is it's like 95% next year, 27% the following year. I mean, there's something very, very strange with those earnings that, that you'd really have to understand to justify holding a company trading at 66 times future earnings. Makes sense to me. Been holding for a while, so, you know, finally got to a point where selling it might make sense and just needed that confirmation. Thank you. You guys are doing the Lord's work. And I appreciate it. Of course, Zach. And just so you know, obviously it can go higher. It could go lower. But, uh, you know, just longer term, it, it looks expensive. And I will say as well, I, I'm i a little bit concerned about the, the regulatory side of it. I know the, the Biden administration has been quite hard on those uh, junk fees, so to speak. And it, Live Nation is, is one one big point to, that's a target there. Understood. Alrighty, well, hey, thanks for calling, Zach. We appreciate you calling in, and uh, you have a great rest of your day there. Yep, have a good weekend. Alrighty, you too. All right, well, that opens another phone line. Phone number is 833-288-0973. Again, that's 833-288-0973. And, and uh, I'm going to turn the, Harris, the mic over to Harrison here. Most of the time we go out to Harrison, but since he's here in studio... Funny enough, I know we're talking about Roth IRAs, and we did not plan Jeff's call about Roth IRAs. It's a plan. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, David, I see you're, you're there wanting to talk about Colgate Pam Olive, so hold with us while Harrison talks about Roths, and, and we'll get to you after his his topic here. All right. So, uh, yeah, kind of a coincidence that Jeff called in about Roths, but um, I wanted to talk about Roths kind of in the terms of um, a tool for high-income earners. Um, so everyone's got an opinion on whether pre-tax or Roth accounts are better. Um, usually for higher income earners, in many cases it can be better to fund uh, pre-tax accounts while you're working when your tax rate is high so you get that big deduction and then convert money over into a Roth account during retirement when your tax rates are gonna be a little bit lower so that you can reduce your RMD taxes. So that, that model can work for a lot of people, however, there are times when Roth accounts can make sense for high income earners. And so in this case, I'm talking about taxable income above $365,000 for a married couple, which is enough to get you into the highest tier, I call it, as far as the tax brackets go. Um, there's really seven federal tax brackets, um, but I really like to break them into three. There's really a low tier, the 10 and 12%. There's the middle tier, 22, 24%. And then there's the high tier, 32, 35, 37 and at taxable income of 365 or above, that puts you into that highest tier, which you know starts at 32%. Uh, percent. So anyway, 
Um, it makes sense if that high income earner is always going to have a higher level of income and never be able to convert that money at a lower rate during retirement. So really, I mean, when you look at a, a, a traditional account and a Roth account, I wouldn't say one is better than the other. You really want to understand both of them and use both of them um, throughout your life. So, um, but in this case, you know, this is one area where Roth accounts can, can I think make a little bit more sense. So if you fund a pre-tax account when your tax rate is high, but then you also withdraw when your tax rate is high, you didn't really reduce your taxes at all. You didn't get a deduction. All you did is you deferred your income. Now that's not a bad thing. Deferring income is helpful because that means along the way, all the growth, all the appreciation, dividends, interest, capital gains, none of that is taxable to you. So you get that tax deferred growth. But you know, a lot of people will say, well, I'm going to fund my 401k because I want to reduce my taxes or I want to get that tax deduction. That's really not what you're doing. You're just, you're kind of just pushing it out to a forward, um, to a forward time. So this is where the Roth account can come in because there are some other benefits to it. Number one, Roth accounts are not subject to RMDs while traditional accounts are. So not only do you pay tax on the withdrawal of the RMD, but then once you take that RMD, now you got to do something with it. Many people spend it, but if you want to keep that money invested, the next best place that you have is a taxable non-retirement account, which means from that point forward, any growth that you have is going to be taxed every single year, um, you know, based on your capital gains, dividends, and all of those things. So with the Roth account, since you're never subject to those um, RMDs, that means more of your money can stay in a tax preferred account for a longer period of time, which, you know, can give you more after tax, uh, after tax benefits. Um, number two, from an inheritance standpoint, inheriting a Roth IRA is substantially better than inheriting a traditional IRA, as long as you're not the spouse. If you're a spouse, then it doesn't make a difference. You can just take that account as your own. But if you inherit a retirement account from someone who is not your spouse, you have 10 years to fully deplete that account. You used to be able to stretch those withdrawals over your lifetime, which would create a, a pension-like income source, but now you've just got 10 years. Traditional accounts are still taxable to you, so you've got to deplete that account within 10 years, and every withdrawal that you take is taxable, and that income gets tacked on top of the other income that you have. So if you inherit a large IRA and you have to take it out over 10 years, you're almost guaranteed to be paying a high tax rate on all of those withdrawals, where a Roth account is still tax-free to whoever inherits that. And then the second part of that is, in many cases, when you inherit a traditional IRA, you have that 10 years, but you also have to take a little RMD every single year. And really, you know, since it's all taxable, in most cases, the best way to do it is, is kind of taking an, an even withdrawal over that 10 years so you don't you know, have a, a huge level of income in any one year, you kind of want to spread that that tax impact out. But with a Roth account, you don't have to take anything. So you could potentially wait until year 10 and then withdraw everything, which means, you know, over 10 years of tax-free growth, if you inherit a million dollars, it could be worth two to $3 million by the time 10 years is up. So now that inheritance is worth a whole lot more because of that extra tax-free growth that you got. So, you know, 
again, in many cases, I kind of like the model of funding pre-tax accounts when you're working and then converting it over to Roth. So you're using both of those accounts. But for someone whose income is going to be high, pretty much all through their life, maybe they're a business owner that is just always going to have high levels of income or, you know, whatever it is, you know, Roth accounts are going to allow more of your money to stay in a, a tax preferred place longer. And it's going to be a whole lot better from an inherited standpoint, which, you know, can be an estate planning tool. Yeah, I, I will say, I, I mean, I've talked to clients in the past where they have these IRAs and they say, I, I don't need it. I don't want it. It's more of an estate planning thing. And they say, I want to convert the whole thing just for, for my daughter, for my son, whatever it may be. And I mean, that is a, a great tool to consider if you are just purely looking at it from an estate planning perspective and you want to give the biggest benefit to your beneficiaries. I mean, that that's a, a great thing to look at there. Yeah. And I mean, you have to be careful with it because once the money's in the pre-tax, you know, you've got to convert out of it, which is taxable income to you. So you want to be conscious of, uh, you know, what your taxable income level is, what tax bracket that you're in, how that is going to change over time, depending on when you retire or whatever. But uh, yeah, I mean, Roth accounts definitely have their place. Tradition, traditional accounts do as well. And again, I don't think one is necessarily better than the other. Um, you just want to understand when to use those accounts at the right time. When to use it and why you're using it and what the, what the purpose is behind it, I guess, is the, the moral of the story. Yeah. the the Usually people say, well, I like uh, Roth because it's tax-free. I can pull tax-free in retirement. Or I like pre-tax because I get the deduction now. And really, you've got to look at what's the rate the money's going in at, what's the rate that money's going out at, and what's the goal in, in terms of how it fits into the other income sources that you're going to have. Yeah, because on the opposite side of that, I, I see sometimes people put everything in a Roth, and then in retirement, they have no income. So then you've just totally given up, essentially, you know, the standard deduction, you've given up those 10, 12% tax brackets that you definitely were probably in during your working years. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. You know, if you're working and you have taxable income, maybe, 22% on the federal side in California, you could also be in the 9.3% on the state side. So 31.3, close to a, close to a third as far as that marginal bracket. So if you're funding the Roth during that time and you're missing out on that 31.3% deduction, but then like you said, you get into retirement. Now you just have social security. And if you don't have any other income, your social security is also not going to be taxable. So you're, you're essentially in the 0% tax bracket. You that it's kind of misaligned. You you missed out on the thirty one percent deduction to save zero percent, as opposed to you know maybe get the twenty two percent deduction um, plus the state at nine point three, and then convert at twelve in retirement. Um, and, and overall, that's going to give you net you out a larger after tax amount. Well, uh, great topic as always, Harrison. And uh, as you can see, Harrison puts a lot of thought into financial planning because he is what I'm going to say a true financial planner. As you talk about, he doesn't manage money, he doesn't sell you products. All he does is look at the financial planning, which goes to retirement planning, cash flow analysis, estate planning, whatever it may be there. He builds that plan for his clients. Uh, you want to give him a call, set a time. That first consultation with Harrison is free. Give us a call at eight five eight. 546 4306 and 858 546 4306 or visit our website, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. Well, as promised, uh, let's go out to David in Long Beach. David, you're on the Smart Investing Show. How are you doing today? Doing great. I haven't talked to you. I mean, I've listened for the last year, but I haven't called in since we did uh, uh, 3M. Anyway, the, my Colgate, the, the family owned it since 1968. I took it over in 1990, and uh, 
fortunately for me, in that up through 2014, they had three more stock splits, and uh, a 60,000 uh, market value went to 720 around 19. I'm sorry, 2015 or 16. I was started selling it off <laughs> to not end up in an Eastman Kodak story. I started selling it off in uh, just just after I got full, you know, uh, ownership of it. Again, it was it was a family thing, and uh, I also retired. I could talk about Roth. Uh, I retired at age 53, I guess, in 1992. So I was, I jumped on the Roth when every CPA in town was saying it's not worth it. I, I converted <laughs> the first day it was available, and it's been fantastic. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Colgate, um, if you remember a few years ago, Hugo Chavez, you know, the poster boy, started confiscating all our large industrial complexes in Venezuela and uh, Colgate has never since that, and then they kept taking additional write-offs as you know as, as that went out. So they had their loss split in 2014, and I think Ruben Mark, the longtime CEO who was considered great by the analysts, he retired. So the stock's basically been flat on earnings and revenue growth. Uh, that probably is just the inflationary cost. So what concerns me about Colgate is they sold off their only secondary line, which was the Hill Science Diet. Most people don't seem to know that, but we got a package of it here in the building, and it, I called it's a separate company. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so what I'm, what I'm worried about is that as they're going forward with flat earnings and just staying flat, um, could, could this company be in a long-term you know, decline? I worry more about the top line than the bottom. Uh, you know, if, if, if top line is growing... And they're they're pretty good on the, you know, managing the the, the cost end of it. Mm -hmm. But again, they're just doing nothing since Hugo Chavez. Okay, all right. Well, well let's take a look here at uh, Colgate Pam Olive. The the ticker symbol is CL. They are in the household and personal products industry. Not much short on Colgate. Uh, just one point two percent institutional ownership is eight point two percent. Looks like they do report this upcoming week. It looks like the report date is July twenty eighth. 2023. Look at the valuation ratios. Oh, wow. I'm quite surprised by this price to earnings multiple 40.5 now above an expensive industry of 30 price to sales at 3.5 also above the industry average of three. Very surprised by this. No equity on the balance sheet. There's no book value, no price tangible book value either price to cash flow. Here's the only positive I've seen so far. 22.2 for price to cash flow below the industry average of 23. The PEG ratio is a 3.5 industry average. Looks quite strange at 28.5. I do see earnings over the last one year. Wow, down 17%. Earnings over the last five years have fallen 5.2%, while sales have climbed 3.6% over the last one year and 3.1% over the last five years. I see the five-year estimated growth for earnings per share is 7.1%. So I'd actually say that's quite positive. I do wonder if their inflation on the expense side has gone up faster than they were able to raise prices. But now, as we know, inflation has kind of cooled a lot for producers. Perhaps that's slowed, and they can still give a little bit more on the sales front to increase prices, maybe around you know 3 4% continuing that on, which should help a little bit more with the, the earnings growth there. Looking at the dividend, uh, I'm a little disappointed here. Just 
2.5% for the yield, and the payout ratio is 98.4%. As I said, they've, they've had some issues there with their earnings over the last year or so, which could elevate that payout ratio, but definitely something I'd keep an eye on. I do see that they've increased the dividend 2.1% over the last one year and averaged about a 2.7% increase over the last five years with over 10 years of consecutive, consecutive dividend growth years. They have a small buyback of about 1.7% for the yield. Now, turning to the balance sheet, current ratio is 1.2 above the industry average of 1.1. So they have liquidity. As I said, no debt to equity with no equity on the balance sheet. So I would understand that, that debt picture a little bit more and, and where that debt level stands. Now, looking at the profit margin, it is 8.7%, slightly below the industry average of 10%. No return on equity. Return on invested capital, though, very good at 20%, above the industry average of 15.6%. Now, the current price for Colgate Pamol, again, ticker symbol CL, is $77.19. The 52-week high is $83.81, and the low is $67.84. I see year-to-date the stock is essentially flat at down just 0.2%. Over the last one year, it's up 4%. Three years, up 11.9%. Five years, up 32.1%. So the stock just seems to really be going nowhere, essentially. Now, going forward to December 2024, I do see estimated earnings per share here of $3.44. Does actually give us a target sell price of $57.10, which is, I'm going to say, substantially lower than the current price of $77.19. Trades at a forward earning multiple of about 22 and a half times future earnings there. So, I mean, it's not inexpensive. We know it's in the consumer defensive space. So, I don't expect a lower valuation, but I think, as you're mentioning there with the concerns, David, I just don't really see the stock going anywhere. I mean, their earnings maybe grow at, let's say, 4 or 5% per year on, a, I'm going to say, a positive side. But you're, I don't think, can really justify much more multiple expansion on this stock. So you're kind of maybe getting a, around, at best, a 4 to 5% gain on the stock, which I think is at best because I think multiple contraction is more likely than multiple expansion. I mean, I... I'm not a big advocate of fixed income, but it, I almost think these stocks are, are more like fixed income type plays where I'd almost, I think, rather own a fixed income instrument than a Colgate Pam Olive, to be quite frank with you. Um, okay. Uh, guess what? The dividend, they're an aristocrat, so they've got about a 50-year dividend increase, but uh, it has slowed way down to barely yeah. anything. However, in 2005, I just happened to have a photocopy from when I finished up an estate and a the uh, on 3,600 shares, then uh, it was about 584 for the quarterly dividend, just in dollars. It is now 1,700 and something a quarter for um, half as many shares. So it's it that that raising the dividend, you know, sneaks in with a compounding deal that makes it phenomenal. And you did everything. Your thinking is basically along mine. It it is a dividend play. Mm -hmm. And that's why I've kept it. I just sold another 100 shares on Thursday as it popped into an ex-dividend date. Uh, it, about once a year, it has a, a move from 70-something to uh, that low 80s there for about a week, and then it's back down. And the, the other thing that, um, uh, oh, that earnings thing that, that kind of caught you, the it was always sitting until the last quarterly earnings report when, uh, it was sitting around 33 or 34, always highly, you know, P.E. ratio. However, that one earnings report, they popped it to the 41, and which is now 39 and a half or something. Mm -hmm. So that's 
they, you're getting the same thing except in spades that I've wondered about it without doing the anal- the deep analysis you did. I'm I'm just going by, as I said, the the top line stuff. Yeah. And they like Procter and Gamble. They are able to have pricing power, but they I don't think they pushed it that much. Yeah, I I agree there. So I I hope that was helpful to you, David. And uh, you know, appreciate your call there. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. All right. Bye now. Have a good day. Uh, I was going to say, you know, the, the interesting thing is with these consumer defensive companies, I mean, it, it's always so hard because, as I said, they, they just don't have much growth, but then their their multiples are not inexpensive. So, I mean, I like the consumer defensive space, and we actually do have one in the consumer defensive space at this time that we were able to get at a attractive multiple. But, you know, it's just hard to justify buying these companies with expensive multiples and really not much growth going forward. So that's why I'm not a fan of these at this time, but hey, you know, things always change and there could be an opportunity for the consumer defensive space as well. I did want to say uh, we were going to cover the US dollar, but I did want to mention, talk about it last week on the radio show. But uh, for our golfers listening, uh, my charity, the Fighters Fight Foundation, we are hosting our third annual golf tournament on August 19th. It'll be at the Rancho Bernardo Inn. It's a fun time. I know Harrison will be there as well. Oh, yeah. Always a good time. (laughs) Always a good time. You know, uh, ticket prices include, you know, obviously the golf, the cart, uh, Free, I, I call it free, but it's included with the ticket. Uh, Coors Light, uh, Kirkland Seltzers, water, drinks there. So, uh, as I said, always a fun time. All the proceeds go towards my charity, which is for our mission of providing women fighting breast cancer with unforgettable experiences. And, you know, want to not forget why we're there, but also, too, it is a fun time. So, you want to register for that golf tournament, go to my charity's website, fightersfightfoundation.com. Again, that's fightersfightfoundation.com. Or if you have questions, you can always contact me via email or give me a call at the office as well. But with that, let's take a look at the U.S. dollar because I know a lot of people have worried about the U.S. dollar as of late. And you may not have noticed, but the dollar has been dropping. So far in 2023, it has been trading between $101 to a high of $105. Last week, actually, the U.S. dollar index dropped 2.3% to $99.89. This is actually a level not seen since April 2022. Now, this will affect consumers in a couple different ways. If you're planning to travel to Europe, the dollar will not go as far as it used to, which means more money coming out of your wallet to pay for lodging, dining, and entertainment. The other factor a weaker dollar has on all consumers is it causes the price of oil to increase. The dollar may remain under $100 for a while, which means oil could trade between $75 a barrel to $80 a barrel. This means consumers will be paying more at the pump, and it will also make inflation data going forward more difficult to see a decline from the recent CPI of 3%. You know, it's really interesting and in, in kind of looking at the dollar. I, I've talked to people, oh my gosh, the dollar's falling. People always worry about, oh, we're going to go off the, you know, we went off the gold standard and that's created problems. Maybe we're going to, you know, lose our, our kind of place as the, the go-to currency across the world. And the thing I look at is you have to understand during COVID, our, our dollar increased so much and then it has kind of started to pull back. And it's like a lot of different parts of the economy where you saw these wild spikes in one direction, we're kind of reverting back to a more normal type period. I mean, you may remember, I think it was what, last year or earlier this year, when the dollar and the euro hit parity. That was the first time in decades that we had seen that. 
and now we're starting to kind of lose gain and kind of ground and go back to more of a normal type situation i would say yeah i know people are concerned about the BRICS thing and yeah. um you know other transactions and other currencies going on but i was reading something recently i think now there's more transactions in the u.s dollar than there really ever has been and so you know it's you kind of have to you know look at it objectively yeah i know china's still trying to do things but they like we said have their own issues going on and um you know, it's, it's something to keep our eye on, but it's not like the dollar is going to lose its status as, as the world reserve currency. And, you know, that's going to, you know, screw a whole thing, bunch of things up right away. And, and actually going back to the China point is in that same Wall Street Journal article that, that we kind of referenced for the foreign investment, they actually talked about the debt loads that a lot of the, the lo, uh, local municipalities in China actually do have there. And I mean, their, their debt levels are extremely high and you have all this uncertainty that, you know, the rest of the world is not going to want to utilize the yuan when there's all these potential issues. So I'm not really that concerned about it at this point. And the big thing I always tell people is the reason we buy businesses, and I don't think this is going to happen, it doesn't matter how you pay for those businesses. You're still going to need, you know, to go to the grocery store. Maybe you're not paying in U.S. dollars anymore. Maybe it is a different currency. But you're still getting a currency for the goods and services that you're providing at the end of the day. Yeah, we're, we're paying for the intrinsic value of the, the company and what they're producing, what the value of that service is. So whatever the medium for exchange is, you know, there, there's still going to be value that they're providing. And we want to be owners of that value that they're producing. It, exactly. And as I said, I really don't see that happening, but it is just kind of a worst case situation. And I, I think the U.S. dollar will continue to be fine. It will continue to be, you know, a very good safe haven for for much of the world as i mean we do have a great system here we do have you know as much as people hate it at times we do have a lot more safety than you know a place like china yeah and i mean that kind of just goes to the point you have to um you know take a little bit of the the negative uh, media out that you that you hear there's always going to be negative talk but that's why we always try to keep things objective as we possibly can we want no emotions just results <laughs> <laughs> you know and, and speaking to that point it is so funny because you know that's kind of the talking point right now a few months ago remember was the, the banking crisis and this is the thing we look at when people invest is if you were to pick out one point at any point in time you'll never invest mm -hmm. because there will always be concerns bad things going on that that will prevent you from investing that's why you need to look at everything look at the big picture and see where things are at and ultimately understand that you're owning the businesses and there's going to be different economic cycles there's going to be different business cycles that is just a reality when you invest in, in good quality companies and i think that that's why fundamental investing makes so much sense because at the end of the day you're buying earnings you're buying revenue you're buying growth as opposed to you know buying something that is extremely expensive and is really just trading off of what other people think it is or that they think it's going higher you know they're looking more at the stock as opposed to the company and so fundamental investing at the end of the day makes sense and as long as you make decisions that make sense you're going to do well long term yeah and it is always funny when people say oh no i'm watching my investments but all they're doing is watching the stock prices it means nothing at all I mean, we have periods where you could gain 10% in a few-day period and then lose 10% in a couple months. I mean, watching the stock prices at the end of the year is not going to benefit your portfolio at all. As you said, it comes down to 
watching the business, understanding those fundamentals. Yeah. If you own a business, you don't want to go outside and just look at it. You want to be looking at, you know, your cash flow, your balance sheet, your income statement, look at it that way. <laughs> exactly. Well, well, great points there. And uh, thank you for listening to the Smart Investing Show. It is for informational purposes only and should not be used as investment advice. If you would like to discuss in more detail your investment needs or have other investment questions, feel free to call myself, Chase Wilsey, also Brent Wilsey at 858-546-4306. Again, 858-546-4306. Please visit our website at smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. And for more daily educational information along with investment tips, go to our Facebook group page, Smart Investing with Brent and Chase Wilsey. I did all that. And may I say